I will talk to you of art. Yes. For there is nothing else. Are you all ready to join me today in our trip to outer space? Come along quietly or not. Well, you can have all the talent in the world and never get anywhere. Some artists will bait a hook and let you bite upon it. And now, without further ado... Well, it's one thing about uh, good jazz. You don't have to worry about what they're talking about. But when they pick up those instruments, we all speak the same language. Hello, folks. This is Albert Shivers. And this is another episode of Planet Shivers. And most possibly one that I've looked forward to the most. I never need an excuse to talk about music and especially jazz music and today I get to talk about the best that ever did it the voice you heard after the intro on this episode was Louis Armstrong and this is going to be a Louis Armstrong centric episode but I'm going to do my best to not blab too much before our guest the guest on today's episode is Sharon Falta, who is Louis Armstrong's daughter. She comes on along with film director John Alexander. Together they are working on a documentary about her life that will be called Little Satchmo. And I got the opportunity and the honor to talk with both of them about this upcoming project help spread the word it was said that it was said by Duke Ellington of Louis Armstrong he was born poor died rich and never hurt anyone along the way Miles Davis said of Louis Armstrong you can't play anything on a horn that Louis hasn't played Bing Crosby said I'm proud to acknowledge my debt to the Reverend Satchelmouth. He is the beginning and the end of music in America. But I think of all the quotes on Louis Armstrong, and there are many, this quote is by Mahalia Jackson, who was a gospel singer. If you don't like Louis Armstrong, you don't know how to love. Hey, hey, what's the matter with you? Don't y'all know y'all are driving me crazy? Step on it. Now let's get together. Watch it, boys. Watch it. Look how we go. One, two. Okay, folks, I'm back. Three minutes into the podcast, I had to take a break. I was talking, sound like a funeral director. This is a show about Louis Armstrong. It's going to be fun. It's going to be upbeat. I ran to the kitchen, slapped myself in the face with some N1 oil, threw some ginger and plantain chips down my neck. I got some water. I'm doing good. This is a Louis Armstrong jazz show. We got to be upbeat. We got to be happy here. Can't drone on like that. Here's what I have to say to you. We are here talking about a man today who pretty much jazz came right out of him. Before him, there was something new brewing. Okay. Trumpeters like Buddy Bolden, King Oliver, Freddie Keppard. These were all New Orleans guys who were out there creating it, you know, taking their instrument 
and and just forcing it to evolve pulling in under other musicians around them dixieland was starting up and here's little louis armstrong born august 4th 1904 loved king oliver and king oliver was real good with the kids he would always take time to see hear the hear the kids who play in the neighborhood the whole thing Louis Armstrong was born in a part of New Orleans that was known as the Battlefield. There was no chance. He had no chance of making it out of there. None. And alive, even more so. But there he was. He worked for a little bit with a Jewish family, selling coal. He would be announcing from the back of the, a back, the, the, back of the coal wagon... Eventually, this Jewish family were the ones who bought Louis Armstrong his first cornet. Armstrong ended up in a waif's home. Now, at the time, I guess it's, it's almost like an orphanage. That's what they called it then. More specifically, he was in a colored waif's home. Let's just be honest about the times. Soon, he was good enough to play right alongside his idol, King Oliver. Okay? That would be like me drawing alongside... Robert Crumb or Ralph Bakshi or doing a collage next to Romare Bearden. That's the the weight of Louis Armstrong being able to play with King Oliver was to him. And he would only listen to King Oliver. When King Oliver left New Orleans and moved to Chicago, I'm telling you, there was no way you were getting Armstrong out of New Orleans. There was no way. But King Oliver sent for him when he went up to Chicago and Louis went. Next thing you know, Louis Armstrong has got his own band. The Hot Five and the Hot Sevens. Do me a personal favor and go listen to these listen to these recordings. These are from like early, early Louis Armstrong. This is his first his first own band. And they were killing it. Killing it. Killing it. Then he starts he's solo for a little while. There's a famous video of him, 1933, in somewhere overseas. I can't remember off the top of my head. I want to say Copenhagen. Great video. Look that up. Just Louis Armstrong, live, 1933. He played with some of the greatest big bands of that time. Fletcher Henderson. He bounced all around. He played a little bit with Sidney Bechet. Very popular... Uh, clarinetist and alto saxophonist he was in movies now I'm going to be honest I'm not I'm an honest person the movies he was in they weren't all the most flattering there's one movie in particular he literally played a character named Uncle Tom or a close facsimile of they were not flattering but whenever he started playing that trumpet you knew you were watching a master, and all the other schlubs in the movie didn't even matter. Okay? He was just, he was bigger than all of it. But it was still, it still sucked. You know, there's a movie, New Orleans, 1947, I think, with Louis Armstrong in it and Billie Holiday. And Louis Armstrong almost plays a version of himself band leader, musician playing in the clubs, jazz clubs. But in this same movie, 
New Orleans. Billie Holiday plays a maid. And I was showing this this uh, this movie to my friend Richie about four years ago. And I told him, I said, hey, you know, it's one of those, you know, there are things we're not going to like about this movie. But we watched it for Louie and for Billy. And the first scene Billie Holiday is in, she's helping some white lady with a robe or some BS like that. And Richie says, the greatest blues singer in the world, or the greatest blues singer the world's ever known, and they got her playing a maid. And that's how it was. Those were the breaks then. <clears throat> and it's it's sucky, but that that's how it went. So anyway, before I start rattling on too much, the guest on today's show, it was an honor to talk to her. Sharon Fulta, the daughter of Louis Armstrong. Now, she is working on a documentary about herself what it was like to be the daughter of Louis Armstrong and the situations that surrounded it. I'll let her tell you about that. But she's working on a movie. So on top of her being on the show, I also got to talk to John Alexander, the director of this documentary that will be called Little Satchmo. And the three of us not only talk about Louis Armstrong, but also how are they making this movie in the middle of a pandemic like this, when no one can be around each other. How, how are they doing it? And they break it down in such an intelligent way about how they're doing it and how the, this may even be helping in a weird silver lining-y kind of way, helping the documentary with all the photographs and all the archive footage they're using and the narration. So it, it's going to be... I'm excited for this movie to come out. I'm going to be spreading the word until it's out, wherever it ends up, whether it's at a festival or streaming. So I got two quick things I want to tell you guys. So I've been recommending things. Go listen to the Hot Fives and the Hot Sevens. Go listen to his middle work through all through the 30s. It's all, it's all out there. It's on Spotify. It's on YouTube. It's easy to access. I'm not telling you to go buy the record. Go find it. Because here's the thing. All right, three things I got to say. Here's the thing about jazz. Okay, For all the rock and rollers out there, I'm talking to you mainly, but everybody just listen in. Think about rock music, okay? Think about the beginning. Think about now. Think about all the subgenres that are in there. You got classic rock, heavy metal, regular metal, math rock, punk rock, grunge, folk rock, all the different kinds of rocks, right? There's that much different kinds of jazz. Nobody realizes this because you turn on college radio and it's all noodles. And sometimes I'm in the mood for noodles, but sometimes I'm in the mood for something else. You know, it isn't all Miles Davis. The average person can't dance to Miles Davis. I love Miles Davis. Miles Davis, On the Corner, Bitches Brew, two of the best jazz albums I think there are. But there's more to jazz than that. And I think nowadays this generation has been duped into thinking that jazz is just boring boring guys noodle it into horns, playing music that's above their head. And they're not entirely wrong, I have to say. My preferred 
era of choice of the 20s, 30s, and to the 40s a little bit. Not the schmaltzy big band crap like Glenn Miller, who, by the way, stole in the mood from Wingy Manoon. Another thing I'll recommend, go on YouTube, listen to Glenn Miller's In the Mood, then go back 10 years and listen to Wingy Manoon's Tar, uh, tar Paper Stomp. It's the same damn song. So I'm not into the schmaltz, but you get into those early big bands with the comp- complicated rhythm section, early Duke Ellington, early Louis Armstrong, early Billie Holiday, early Benny Goodman, Artie Shaw in the early days, um, early Count Basie, um, Sidney Bechet, uh, more female singers, Maxine Sullivan, Ivy Anderson, early Sarah Vaughan, um, Una Mae Carlisle, Lil Green, or Lil, uh, Lil, yeah, Lil Armstrong, a previous wife of Louis Armstrong. You know, there's all these different sections of jazz, bebop, hard jazz, free jazz, if that's what you're into, um, acid jazz, jazz fusion, big band, Dixieland, jump blues, like, the list goes on, it isn't just the noodles, there's so much more on the table, you know what I'm saying? So that's one thing. My third thing is about the song, What a Wonderful World. Now, there was a time when that song annoyed me. Now, it didn't annoy me for the Fuji's reason. How could you say it's a wonderful world when the world's so messed up? And Louis Armstrong even addressed that. But my gripe with the song... Look, when I was at the peak of discovering jazz, learning about all this old music, I was real pure about it. I wanted to only listen to 20s and 30s. I didn't want to know nothing about anything else. And when somebody would come to me and we'd talk about music, and I'd bring up Louis Armstrong, and they'd be, oh, well, he does What a Wonderful World. It would always rib me. It would always get me. Because in my head, I'm screaming to myself, there's more to him than that. There's more to him than that. But that's all anybody ever knew. Maybe they knew Hello, Dolly. But mainly they knew he was the guy with the gravelly voice who sang What a Wonderful World. They didn't even know about his trumpet playing. Which irked me on top of that uh, even more. I didn't make my peace, if this is a funny thing to say, but I didn't make my peace with that song until New Year's Eve. 2017 going into 2018 I'm watching the ball drop I'm amongst friends the ball's dropping when it hits they do the the main song they do that and right after that in Times Square thousands of people they play Louis Armstrong What a Wonderful World For the first two seconds, that same emotion hit me. I was pissed off. I was like, oh. But then, one by one, all the people on TV, all the people in the crowd, the anchors, everybody, all start singing along with this song. They all start singing along with Louis Armstrong. And they're they're panning over New York. They're panning over all these people. They're panning over Times Square. And it hit me, and I had to leave the room. 
I broke down into tears because there he is. It doesn't matter what song it is. It was 2018, and Louis Armstrong was still part of pop culture enough that a bunch of people in Times Square nowadays, from young to old, all were singing along with him. And he's he wasn't dead. You know, he's, he's still alive. And, and if it's that song that keeps Louis Armstrong in people's heads, then that's all that matters. And I grew a love for that song for that reason. Because that's all I'm trying to do. When I'm babbling on about jazz, I'm not trying to force anybody to listen to something they don't want to listen to. Because I know. I've been forced to try to listen to crap that I have no interest in. I ain't trying to force anybody to listen to anything. But if little me could help spread this word and help pushing Armstrong and Ellington and Billie Holiday and the lesser known guys, if I help keep them going... By word of mouth, by maybe playing a song for somebody at some point. That's all that matters. And that's what I think this documentary that we're going to be talking about is going to do. Little Satchmo, you, the viewer, are going to be able to learn about a part of this man's life that really wasn't talked about too much. It wasn't. Because of the times, because of everything. And I'm going to let um, Miss Folta and John Alexander go into that more. That's all I'm trying to do is just keep it alive. It's good music. It's fun music. It's not all noodles. There's a correlation to my eye about the decline of jazz and its ability to be danced to. Now, it might sound silly, but you look into it, you'll see the correlation. My last thing before we get to the interview um, this coming weekend, how fitting is this? I'm going to be doing my first solo show since the pandemic started in March. This show is being put on by the Create and Be Art Culture and Create and Be Art Studio. Courtney, Sylvia, and Namu. And they have been helping me out so much with my art, specifically my music-related art. They've been helping me get out there. They've been helping me find eyeballs. And all a visual artist wants are eyeballs and more eyeballs. Name of the show again is Jazz Ain't Dead. It's going to be an art exhibition and guided tour. Now, before you get nervous about guided tour and people telling you how to look at art, bear with me for a second. First of all, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Numbers are going up and down. We don't know who to believe. It's mass confusion. And this is a live art show. So here's how they're going to work it. The gallery space is very big. There's the space. There's the hallway. Then they're only going to let in 10 people at once. Okay? If you miss, if there's 10 already in there and you show up, you can wait for people to leave and then you go in or run around a little bit. It's supposed to be a, a comfortable weekend. It's not going to be like scorcher out. 
walk around town a little bit, see the sites, what sites there are, and you come back. They want to keep you feeling safe and have you feel comfortable. There's going to be a lot of jazz art, mostly all about 85% of my jazz-related artwork will be there. Some pieces you may never have seen before. It could be new to you. Um, some pieces you might be familiar with, but you'll get to see them in person, big, um, live and big in person. On top of the tour, which is, is a light tour, they're not going to be dragging you around by the hand. They're going to show you the art. They're going to talk about certain pieces. Then you go in the room. I'll be there. There's going to be a, a little period for questions and answers. It's going to be fun. It's going to be light and fun. It's going to be a good time. And that's that's what I'm that's what I'm looking forward to. It's this weekend, August 22nd, August 23rd. You can go on the Create and Be Art Culture website, which is www.cbartculture.com. They also have a Facebook Create and Be Art Culture. They have an Instagram too. Go look them up. This gallery is going to be the future of this place for art. They're bringing in a lot of new faces. For me, being an artist, they're bringing in a lot of new eyes who are interested in new and exciting things. I try to present jazz from an old age in a new way. You know, in a some people call it a scary way, some people call it a psychedelic way, some people call it creepy, some people call it fun. They love it, they hate it. And this is my interpretation of jazz. This is my fresh interpretation of an old music, giving it a new twist. You know? So that's my deal. You can also find updates on the show on my own Instagram at Albert Shivers. Real simple, just my name, boom, and you're there. I'll be posting things all week. As a matter of fact, when I'm done recording this podcast, I'm going to be going over to drop off the art to Courtney and we're going to discuss the show. I am really excited to be dropping off the art and then to go back there this weekend and see what they did with it. Courtney is a great arranger. She's a great curator and I am an arranger myself. My apartment is very strategic. I like making things just so. But I'm excited to see what her mind, where her mind takes my jazz, how it's arranged, and um, how she sets things up. I'm excited to have nothing to do with it, not from a point of view of laziness or not wanting to do it. I'm excited that I'm not doing it because I'm excited to see what somebody else does with it. I don't care what I think of my own art. I'm interested in what you think of the art, what other people get out of it, what other people see from it. That's way more interesting to me than what my view is of it. But now, just like I was last week, I'm rambling, so I'm going to stop. Um, Jazz Ain't Dead, August 22nd, 23rd. I'm dropping everything this coming weekend. It's going to be a good show. It's going to be fun. It's going to be light. And I look forward to seeing whoever decides to show up. I'm looking forward to seeing you now. 
it's really a big honor and a real privilege to introduce to you guys Miss Sharon Fulta, daughter of Louis Armstrong and the director of the documentary, the soon-to-be-coming documentary, Little Satchmo, John Alexander. We had a fantastic conversation, and I'm so excited to share it with you guys. So, let's get to it. What am I doing here? What are the Yes, yes a chariot on chariots. I got to ride. Yeah, I got to have a chariot. Hello. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you. I really appreciate you doing this show. My pleasure. Um, we appreciate the uh, the opportunity and the invitation. Cool. And it's nice to meet you, John. Nice you to meet you, Albert. Computer. I appreciate you guys both doing this. And I guess being that we're here, we can get started. Um, so the first couple of questions, <clears throat> excuse me, I'd like to direct to you, um, Ms. Folda. Um, first of all, let's start off with um, how long did you, were you aware that Louis Armstrong was your father and what were his, his letters like to you? I've known all my life, so okay. uh, from a very early age. And, um, and how I knew was that he was um, a part of our lives. He would come over to our home when he was in town and uh, he would spend time with mom. But, you know, as a toddler, I also traveled, my mother and I traveled with him during the summers. So it wasn't a secret to me okay. at, at all. Uh, you know, so it, it was something that I grew up with. What I found out from mom was when it was time to go to school, it needed to be a secret from everybody else because it was, it was our business, as I was told, and okay. it was private for my protection. Okay. And of course, later on, I would learn many other things, but that was the main reason. So I've always known. Okay. Oh, great. And so what, did he always write you letters? He, yes. Um, you know, as, um, as a person, he wrote thousands of letters to many people. That was how he liked to communicate when he was working He'd get off either handwritten or with his typewriter, he would write. So when my mother uh, comes from a show business background mm -hmm. and as friends, you know, she was married at the time and my father would write letters to her and her husband. And then later when their relationship started, he'd write to her. And then as I grew older, he would write to me and a lot of times write to me in the same letter that he would write to my mother. So there are letters that we have where she's speaking to her and then he'll speak to me or send a message to me. So this is something that, you know, um, was very familiar with all my life. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that you guys traveled together. How much time did you get to spend with him throughout your life? You know, not for my sake, not enough. Right. But, and, you know, overall, he worked so many um, days. He was on the road. I would, I would think about 300 out of 365 days. I mean, some incredible number. Right. And with other obligations in his life, maybe he was over our house 
uh, every other month, every three months or something like that. And then we go on the road. So um, if I had to compile it mm -hmm. all together, I would say out of 12 months, maybe a month, you know, that we really got to spend time with him. So not a lot. And a lot of that time was, you know, seeing him perform or being, you know, before the show or after the show and then backstage, you know, and or, or off off to the side of the stage during the show or in the front row. And if it was a nightclub, I'd be back at the hotel, you know, okay. and mom would be at the show. Right. So, um, and then when I did see him, it was more, um, you know, it, it, it wasn't really that private. We had private moments, mm -hmm. but I'm seeing him as really part of his entourage, my mother and I. That, you know, that's pretty much how it was, except for, you know, um, when everybody left, but it was time to go to bed or time to just wake up. So not a lot of, not a lot of downtime with him. Right. So you, you had attended his, attended his shows. Um, even now, do you listen to his music? Is it, is it, a, obviously it's a different experience for you to listen to it than, than other people. Do you listen? I do listen to it. Yeah. You know, I, um, do a show here in Sarasota, we have a community radio station. Mm -hmm. And the focus of my show is actually female voices. That's, that's what I enjoy doing. Okay. And I pick uh, different styles of music and 90% of my playlist is nothing but female artists. But every year, you know, I have um, so much fun putting together a, a birthday tribute to my father because right away, I can remember all the music that I heard growing up from right. the early days, seeing him perform to songs mom played around the house. Of course, I'm hearing songs on the radio. Right. And I grew up, so 1955 on, he had a whole different sound. You know, it wasn't that early jazz sound. It was more uh, his pop, as a pop icon. So. Right. Uh, you know, it was a lot of uh, duets that he did with either Bing Crosby, Danny Kay, um, Blueberry Hill, Hello Dolly, all of those songs, plus different albums that came out during that time that I would hear a lot of. And and so, you know, for me, very familiar with his music, heard it all the time, loved it, and it it has informed me about, you know, music and and what is excellent and and what's good and what's not good, you know, in all in all types of music. Gotcha. So your mother was also somewhat involved in the jazz scene. And from what I understand, she was a dancer. Yes, yeah, she was a dancer in Black Vaudeville. Uh, her and her husband were a dance team, Slim and Sweets. So they uh, performed, and I would say um, all through the 1940s was their, you know, key time that they performed here in the States, abroad, with the USO, um, but mainly in shows that, you know, the shows were put together where there was a headliner, there were opening acts, there were the, you know, the mid-range acts, the, the comics. So mom and Slim would be on that bill and they'd be, you know, towards the, the opening. And then the show would close with someone like my father or Billie Holiday or Account Basie. And they would tour all over. Um, and then, but 
they really toured a lot in, in the South during Jim Crow era in what was known as uh, the Chitlin circuit. Okay. You know, so yes, yeah, so she danced. Um, she started dancing when she was 16. She was born in 1921. Um, her first real job was on a cruise ship to Buenos Aires. And when she got off, she just continued to dance. And then she met Slim and they had a great career together. Were they ever filmed or featured in a, in a movie? Uh, they were filmed. There are some clips on YouTube, you know, okay. um, one that I definitely know of, maybe there are two, but one that I know of, and then there was, uh, we have a DVD of her dancing, you know, in, in with a whole bunch of different acts. Right. So, but not ex not extensively extensively filmed. If they were extensively filmed, uh, I'm not sure where that film ended up. Right, I understand. And so, did you um, did her dancing career eclipse at all with you being a child? Did you get to see her dance at all? It pretty much ended. Okay. Yeah, once she had me, that that was pretty much it. You know. Uh, at that point, she and my father had been in a relationship for five years. So, you know, she's within the first couple of years, she stopped working. Hmm. And then once she had me, that was it. She was a stay at home mom, didn't work anymore. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, John, um, let's bring you into the conversation. Um, for folks who don't know yet, um, you guys are working on a documentary together as we speak, called Little Sanchmo. And um, I stumbled across this just on an evening researching Louis Armstrong on my own. And um, I'm always excited to see a new jazz film coming out, something new that I've not seen yet. So um, first, a question for the both of you, where did the title come from? Well, as, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, that I came across the title from Sharon's book, her sort of memoir autobiography, which she co-wrote with Deneen Milner, um, published a few years ago. And the title of that book is, is Little Satchmo. But Sharon can probably answer better than me about the, the true origins of it. But I know that her father, you know, used that phrase in some of his letters um, and some of his correspondences with Sharon and with Sharon's mother saying things to the effect of, you know, how's my little Satchmo or loves and uh, paraphrasing here, but like hugs and kisses to my little Satchmo and things, things like that, you know, referring to his, his one child, the, this secret child that nobody, nobody was allowed to know existed. Um, so. That's exactly it. You know, that's, that's how he referred to me. So um, it, when writing the book, wanted to, uh, I, I actually wanted to just name it living in the shadow of my father. Mm -hmm. And um, my editor not, uh, or agent at the time said, did you have a nickname? And that was when I realized, oh, okay, well, I was referred to as Little Satchmo. And she said, that's the name of the book. But I kept the rest of it because, you know, dramatically I, I really wanted to convey what the book was really all about yeah and i remember when we first like were talking about adapting the book into this documentary which is sort of the the general approach we're taking just at a high level um 
I remember Sharon and I at one point talked, I think probably over text or email being like, what about titles? You know, should we brainstorm other titles? And, and, and I think you said something to the effect of, should we, you know, consider a title better than little Satchmo? And I'm like, what, what could be better than little Satchmo? That says it right there. Let's just stick with that. If that doesn't, you know, if that works for everybody. Um, so yeah, it's the working title, but I really don't, I don't foresee it changing. No, I, I think I think we're we're there. Um, you know, our uh, one of our producers has created um, wonderful imaging for the the documentary project and the way Little Satchmo appears, the colors and everything else. I I, I don't see it becoming anything else. Yeah, it definitely sounds sounds fitting to me, especially as I'm learning your story. So, how did you two begin to work together on the film? Yeah, so it's actually through this this producer um, that Sharon's mentioning, Leah Umberger, who's um, also based in Florida, like Sharon is. And um, I guess my last film, which was also a documentary, a music documentary called This Is Love, was screening in um, St. Petersburg, Florida. And this producer, Leah, this wonderful powerhouse, do, do it all and make it happen type person, um, had booked our film this is love to screen in st petersburg for a, a film and, and music festival that she organizes the et cultura series which has a um a, a film series at a at a um at a spot in st petersburg so she booked our film to come down there and and it went really well it was a nice intimate kind of venue and um and we were treated really nicely and the audience loved the film and Leah basically after the screening kind of came up to my wife and myself, my producing partner and myself, JC Guest and I, she came up to us and was basically like, I, I have a story that, you know, to tell you guys about, I, you need to, you need to hear about this, uh, this story. Do, do, do you want to know about Louis Armstrong's daughter? And we're like, you know, as most people say, I didn't know Louis Armstrong had a daughter. Yeah. And she's like, yeah, that's the whole point. <laughs> and, um, sort of planted the seed there, I guess. And we stayed in touch and um, it, was, it was months later, I guess, that she, she sort of more formally, you know, brought it to our attention and actually sent us the book. And I read the book pretty much right away in one sitting. Um, and from there, I mean, I just, I thought it was a great, you know, very crystal clear um, voice coming through that a voice that, had never been heard and a voice that's sort of the secret side of someone, uh, you know, an American icon whom we all sort of claim and act like he's part of our extended family, yeah. whether he is or not, you know, collectively. Um, um, so it just sort of grabbed me right, right from there. And then we, then I guess we started connecting um, about a year ago, you know, remotely just over the phone yeah. and, mm -hmm. um, and over email and then we met earlier this year before the pandemic hit and sort of laid you know some groundwork as to how we can actually make this happen and here we are doing it you know despite despite the circumstances and despite the uh the quarantine and social distancing we're making that all i think work toward the film's advantage while staying safe and um taking all precautions it's actually um it's actually perfect timing in, in, in that sense. This project came at a, at a good time for, for, for me production wise and um, a good time, I think, you know, personally and life wise for Sharon. So um, 
yeah, that's that's sort of how we connected. And now we're like in the thick of it. And I don't know, I have like my eye on the prize. I'm we're filming and we're recording things and I'm editing and we're we're just working through it. Yeah, we uh, you know, we are a great example of how you can persevere and and make something work in unusual circumstances because John needed to direct me, of course, in doing the reading and I am narrating the documentary. Mm -hmm. So uh, creatively, John directed me through FaceTime as my Mac computer, uh, the software was able to, uh, JC, who is was recording and editing, was able to connect, you know, I pulled up the software on my computer that she sent me and and we were able to do it live and finished all of the voiceovers that we needed to do. We still have more recording and that's going to be done in person, but we got the voiceover part done. Um, leading up to that, we had a lot of uh, photos and uh, other research that had been done. And right after we recorded, John, what did it take you a week? Not even to take the voiceover, some of the photos, some of the uh, research, and he put together uh, an awesome sizzle wheel. So, so guys be, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no. So, you know, I mean, that that's how far along we are. So, you know, we've, we've, we've got the, the flavor, the overall picture, of course, down the road, maybe some things will change, maybe not. But I mean, we are, we're in a great place now. Hmm. So will you be using a lot of archive footage and, and photographs in the documentary? We, we will. And we're sort of in the process of, of gathering and organizing as much of that stuff as possible, um, which is like a hugely daunting task, by the way. But, um, uh, but I think it's really important, like with, with this film in terms of using archival material, that it's kind of as much as possible sort of framed in the, in the perspective of Sharon and as as these archival uh, materials relate to the daughter of Louis Armstrong's perspective. So like, for example, I mean, and Sharon, you know, cut me off if I'm not saying something accurately, but I mean, so much of her re relationship with her father was sort of an extension of reality from these fleeting moments that they had together, you know, where is so much of her relationship with her father was actually through the media and through television and through the music. And, you know, there's like a line in the film, something along the lines of, um, you know, th his music made her, um, deluded her into thinking he was around more than he actually was. Um, so by planting the audience kind of in Sharon's perspective or in, in little Sharon's perspective, little Satchmo's perspective, um, you know, and we and and we have like POV shots or see and um, or seeing you know archival clips playing on a on a vintage television set rather than just seeing the clips directly. Um, it sort of makes you feel like a yearning for to connect mm -hmm. with it more and kind of a more of a distance in between the audience and the the archival material itself. So rather than we will use a lot of archival stuff, but rather than just sort of you know going straight into big sweeping images of, of still archival images that take up the whole screen. We're sort of trying to reframe it and in context of Sharon's life and how it connected with, with her and her father. Right. 
So Sharon, what are some of your favorite memories of Louis Armstrong that you're featuring in the film? Well, um, can't give, give it all away, but right. I, I, I will. <laughs> but I will share that um, we will, you know, kind of feature some of the conversations that I had with him, like some some special moments that just happened, and uh, that you know I look back now and just so thankful. Didn't really realize in those moments the wisdom that was being said to me or the heart in which it was communicated to me uh, being 10, cause I passed, uh, my father passed when I was 16. So mm -hmm. the last time I saw him, um, I was 13. Wow. So it all happened when I was much younger. So, you know, hearing him say certain things at age 10, 11, you know, I'm, I'm a kid and it's like, oh, okay, thank you you know, very nice. And I look back now and just think, oh, okay, that was a life lesson. And look at my life and how it informed me. So we we do touch on those. And uh, musically, we feature, you know, th there'll be some of the music that I listen to a lot. And some of my favorite songs will kind of be in the soundtrack there. Nice. Um, so that's, you know, that's, what the documentary will show in, you know, it's just that, that relationship that I had with him in, in, in moments and, and letters in any way that, you know, it, it came at me and um, over the years, you know, just really putting it together and just thinking about, you know, what that was all about. So you both mentioned it a little bit before. Maybe we can go into a little bit deeper on the film. First of all, you guys start production on this film and then boom, here comes the pandemic. So with that curveball thrown at you and also, you know, working far apart like that, um, John, what sort of styles of documentary and filming are you using to best tell this story? Yeah, um, it, it's obviously a super relevant question that's on our mind um, a lot and how, and how to use this situation, you know, to the best of the projects or to the project's benefit. But um, I mean, I think it's actually, it's as I sort of alluded to, I think it's, it's sort of serendipitously, universally very convenient actually for this project because this is really like a very domestic film. It's about home life and about you know, family relationships and kind of the innermost circle. It's not a grand sweeping international film, despite, you know, Louis Armstrong's international appeal. This is a very local domestic story that's really about isolation and in, invisibleness, you know, and, and family not existing when, when you want them right there in the living room with you. Um, so in terms of the, in a way, those are like the same themes as, as what this pandemic has brought up. We're all isolated, <laughs> you know, no one's, no one's in the same room and it's about these sort of empty spaces and lack of, you know, human contact. Um, so how that's reflected stylistically out of this, like really sort of, you know, convenient connection. Um, um, 
it, it's, it's really through kind of B-roll is sort of a crude way of putting it. It's more than B-roll, but it's, you know, shots with, with, um, without, without people in it, you know, shots where you'd expect to see a human figure where you, where you don't, maybe a door is opening or closing, but there's no person there or, you know, a shot of a part of a couch next to a lamp. It sort of seems like a partial living room scene where you'd expect somebody sitting, say, watching TV, but there's nobody there. Um, you know, and, and these kind of, these kind of shots it's sort of hard to describe, but, uh, um, you know, they kind of give a sense of the negative space rather than the positive space. Um, B-roll, POVs, you know, shots from a child's perspective, meaning a little bit lower to the ground, looking up at a screen, looking up at a clock. Um, these are the kind of things that, that are, you know, kind of isolated and invisible in nature. And fortunately, you know, things that we can actually film right now. I mean, we can safely film these things without getting together in the same room, um, you know, without, without gathering people. So um, that's kind of how we're, how we're taking advantage of it. Right. I understand. And do you guys have a projected date for the film or is that still up in the air? We're working toward a 2021 release. Okay. And um, do you know like where the film will be available yet, or is that still down the road? It's it's still down the road, but we we hope for it to be um, available on public television and um, cable and streaming. No, that'd be awesome for the, this way, because now naturally the future is uncertain. Who knows what the availability of screenings will be for people to be able to gather together. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that this, I think this is, uh, I think this will make, make for a good public television material. Um, and, you know, hopefully it'll have a good festival run as well, but what that'll look like, we're not holding our breath for, and we, we just don't know. So I think, I think if any, you know, if any film is poised to have a good festival run, um, it's this, this is the sort of material that audiences would engage with just because it's, I mean, it's, it's appealing because it's sort of the secret side of someone you, you know, you, you thought you knew is sort of the, the mass appeal hook. But on a deeper level, it has all sorts of social themes, abandonment, fatherless households. Um, you know, we'd like to hook up with relevant charities and nonprofits to exploit the film in a more, ex, you know, ed educational space. Um, so I think there's a lot of, a lot of you know, a lot of implications and a lot of different tangents that we can, we can explore there. It's also, you know, I should say too, it, it's going to have that sort of added um, angle of, of being, as we've mentioned, like a film released or, you know, made during the pandemic. I mean, essentially this is a, a you know, pandemic production that we're, we're doing. We would have made different choices off the bat were it not for these circumstances, but you know, as you can probably sense from, from what I'm saying, I actually think that the limitations have bred a certain line of thinking and a certain creativity that um, I don't think we would have arrived at otherwise. And I do think um, serves the story and, and helps communicate it. Right. So sort of a, a wind down question here. So for the, for the big jazz fan, for the jazz fan out there who believes they've seen it all and possibly heard it all, could could that person expect to be learning a lot? I feel so 
could that person be expecting to learn a lot from this documentary? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, in certain circles, people knew it was one of those uh, badly kept secrets because very early on, you know, my father wrote letters to his manager and to other people and he mentioned me and my mother. So, you know, it was out there and then, you know, then it got very, very quiet, you know, when his management, his wife, they all realized that this is not, um, it, he's not going anywhere. He's not going to change. If he made those changes, it would affect his career. So he understood that and then would communicate that to my mother. And so over the years, that's where their relationship started to decline. But um, he was very proud that he was a father. He was very proud to be in a relationship with my mother because he had admitted that he wanted to have a more permanent relationship with my mother, mm -hmm. but his reality came in. So anyway, um, I just want to say that for those who love him, it's only showing a more human side of him. It is not taking away. If anything, it gives him a humanity that I find that he's not often given. He's often treated like uh, someone on a pedestal who played his horn 24 seven and smiled when he wasn't playing his horn. And, you know, was just, you know, kind of like this Disney-esque character. Mm -hmm. And he was very much flesh and bones. Um, he was, you know, flawed, but he was such a good human being. He was generous. Um, he was kind, he was funny, and he was extremely serious. And he, uh, contrary to what people think, he really did understand what it meant to be a black man. He just chose to walk in, in this way to, you know, uh, to make life bigger for him, his family, and, you know, and to bring in more of the world. But he never, he never, denied that he was a black man and he definitely suffered in in the way that we've all suffered um, with indignities and and being uh, unfairly treated and un, you know you know just not recognized in the way that he should so um you will definitely learn something and for everyone i, I definitely want to communicate it is a it, it is being respectful to him and his humanity. Yeah, I, I think that's such an important point too. I mean, the, just the fact that almost to, to deny the, the fact that he had a, a child or a daughter is sort of to be c complicit in the, the reducing of Louis Armstrong to basically a caricature rather than three-dimensional person. Um, you know, but he, as Sharon said, I mean, he always, he expressly wrote on many occasions that he always wanted to be a father. He loved children. He, you know, he, he was robbed out of the relationship just as much as Sharon may have been because the fact that he couldn't publicly relish in something that he so wanted to. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's a very compassionate portrayal 
and a very accurate portrayal of of the relationship you know from from both sides and we're just trying to do our kind of our i'm trying to interfere as little as possible and just let sharon's story sort of you know shine as authentically as um as it can you know on its own and and you wanted something uh personal oh um so uh i'm trying to get the reflection not in here okay well anyway you can see the photo and um and this is in uh a lot of our marketing material so this was a gift to me and the writing it says thanks sharon i love love ooh l-o-v-o-o which means then you y and four o's uh your pappy satch so that's I, you know, not sure if he was singing crying not sure what was going on in the photo but he chose to put a message on this photo to give to me and back in the day he would preserve uh photos by scotch tape that was that was their uh prehistoric lamination Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. yeah, that's, yeah, that's really beautiful. Uh, that and 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 uh, an audio letter, but you know, a lot of it was um, was the moments. Though you know, that's that's what I really had. I've watched documentaries. I've read books. You know, I, I consider myself somewhat a student of um, particularly early jazz, and this was news to me that I was very surprised about. Um, so for it to be news to me, you know, it, it, I feel that most people probably would have had no idea. And I've even had um, literature and, and films paint him as somebody who never got the chance to have a child or always wished he could have. I can't imagine it from your point of view, but even from my point of view is, um, sadness for for him that he couldn't be public about it and that it's been misrepresented as well well you know there was they had their reasons mm -hmm. let's you know we can't ignore the fact that it was the 50s and 60s right. so uh in that time this kind of knowledge especially if he wasn't even if he was going to divorce his wife and go with my mother would have really affected his career yeah. um in, in a very negative way especially as a black man mm -hmm. and you know that was um a real choice for him uh, a hard choice but truly you know he without his um stage the horn the entertaining that was that was him wasn't just a part of him it was who he was his horn was everything to him so um and and, and so he made his decisions in that space mm -hmm. and you know his secret remained uh until i just decided that it was time that i told my story because mm -hmm. my parents did what they needed to do for them so eight years ago was when i first published the book so that's when you know it hit and it was more shocking but my my news has been out there for a while and times have changed and you know people are more and more looking at it as a part of who he was and his humanity than the shock of you know 
trying to tear down an icon where it's it's not in that that thought so um you know it just you know over time um we're we're just at a a, a different place right is your book still available for folks to find yeah it's on amazon uh amazon you know just look up little satchmo and the rest of it will come up and you can get it on amazon it's uh in paperback and uh, as an e-reader. Okay, great. And where can folks go to find out more about the movie as you guys progress? Yeah, you can, people can follow it on social media um, at littlesatchmo.doc. Okay, is that on um, Facebook? Facebook and um, Instagram. Okay, great. And do you guys have a website? Yes, littlesatchmodoc.com. Okay, great. And I'll make sure to put links to it um, once the episode is up. Awesome. I'm excited to see what you guys come up with. I'm excited to watch the movie wherever I can. Awesome. Definitely. Well, we're excited. We're excited to be getting closer and closer to having a finished product and to getting it out there. But yeah, in the meantime, you know, thank, thank you so much. This has been a great interview and um, thank you for spreading the word. To both of you, John, it was a pleasure to meet you. And um Sharon, it was an honor. I, I hope you nothing but the best for the film and for everything you have going on. And um, I hope you both stay safe and healthy till the end of this thing. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. And, and uh, we really appreciate the opportunity to, you know, talk about the documentary because, you know, the more we put it out there, it, you know, it's, it becomes more and more real. And, uh, and, 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 you know, just adds to the excitement of, of completing it and having it done. So um, we're, you know, very happy that um, you did some research and, and stumbled upon us. Yeah, absolutely. As am I. Awesome. Thanks so much, Albert. Yep. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Take care. Okay. Take care. Well, there you go, folks. Sharon Fulta, daughter of Louis Armstrong and film director John Alexander. It was amazing to talk to the both of them, both about Miss Fulta's life and her working with John to make this film from a book that she had written. Um, I'm going to do my best to keep you all out there up to date on the progress of this film. I'm going to tell you where to go to find the film. The links are going to be below. You could find out information. I'm going to try to keep up to date. And once the film is out, I'm going to be throwing it all over Facebook and Instagram because I'm excited to see where they go. Naturally, you know, they couldn't give everything away, but it was a fantastic taste of what, what there is to expect in this movie. And... Also, don't forget, if you're around, Jazz Ain't Dead, my big solo art show, August 22nd and 23rd. Um, if you're interested in jazz, or if you're not, if you're just interested in seeing some art, you don't need to be into jazz to come to the show and to enjoy the art, but you might leave a little bit of a fan. You never know. Keep your mind open. So I want to once again thank 
Miss Fulta and John Alexander for coming on this show. It's a huge day for the Planet Shivers podcast to be able to put this out. And um, man, next week's going to be another good week. I can feel it. So until then, stay safe, stay happy, open your mind. And you know, look look for the happiness, man. Just, God damn it, just go out there and find it. Bessie Tucker, let's kick this mule. You can find this episode and more of the Planet Shivers podcast on all major podcast platforms and YouTube with video footage attached to it. You could find my work on Instagram at Albert Shivers. We're all going to be back at it next week. Looking forward to it. Don't forget, for the millionth time, Jazz Ain't Dead, August 22nd and 23rd at the Create and Be Art Studio. Look them up on Instagram, on Facebook, and on their website at www.cbartculture.com. Talk to you next week, folks.